Well, today, as we continue to develop this idea that is our idea for the year, which is that life for the believer in Jesus is mission, I want to remind you of a couple of things. And I want you to remind you, first of all, that by life, I don't just mean every single moment of our everyday lives, though I do mean that. I mean also every category of life, every area of life. And so one of the things that you've heard me say, if you've been hanging with us for the last six weeks, is that marriage, for example, is mission. Now, how does that work exactly? What does that mean? It means that you and I, as believers in Christ, that we together as the people of God, if we are going to successfully take the gospel to the nations the way that we're called to do, that's the mission, need to do marriage differently from everybody else. Our marriages need to be different than the world. So that when the world comes to us and says, hey, you know what, I noticed that you and your wife like are the only people in our whole office who seem to have a healthy relationship, and I'm just kind of curious about that. How does that work for you? What's the difference? Because I've noticed that there's a difference. We can introduce them to the one who is the difference, and that is Jesus Christ. We can say, listen, the difference isn't me. The difference isn't her. We're not all that bright. It's not us. It's Christ alive in us. It's the fact that he's come to us and he's humbled us. We've repented of our sin before Him and do it again and again and again. And He's working His character of humility into our lives. It's it's that His Spirit lives in us and is producing in us as we seek to walk with Him day by day by day. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now just stop for a minute and imagine the value of those things to a marriage relationship. Think about that. It's the Lord God who has forgiven us through faith in Jesus Christ and calls us then to forgive each other. Wow! It is the author of marriage himself who comes to us with a wisdom that is ancient and seems archaic in our day. But how is the wisdom of our day working exactly? It works when we humble ourselves before it, submit to it as wisdom and truth, and by the power of the Spirit live it. Listen, marriage is mission when that happens, because marriage becomes then for us a platform that we get to step up onto and say, hey, look, it's not us, it's the Lord. See how it works? Same thing with parenting. Parenting is mission. Everybody is interested in how to raise their kids, everyone. Everyone loves their kids, and they want the best for their kids, and you know what? It's a mess for us as parents out there, even for us as parents in here isn't it? We need to parent differently so that we can introduce the world to the one who is the difference. Business is mission. We need to do business differently according to a different ethic and with a different purpose. It's not just about profits. It's a platform from which to proclaim the holiness and the gospel of the one who is himself the difference. Time is mission. Talent is mission. Treasure is mission, and it's an important part of the mission. The world needs to see us worship a different God than they do. One who is of greater value. So anyway, I want to remind you at the beginning of the message here that when I say that life is mission, I don't just mean every moment of every day of our lives. I mean that, but I also mean every category. And I want to very specifically and purposefully add a category to the list that we've kind of been talking about. And the category that I want to add today is that of suffering. I want you to see that suffering, too, is mission. It is something that God gives to us that we might, by the power of His Spirit, embrace it and suffer differently from the rest of this world so that the rest of the world can look at us and go, my goodness, there's a difference here. What's the difference? And we can say, you know, it's really not a what. The difference is a who. 
I want to tell you, do you want to know when you have everybody's attention? It's when you suffer. Your kids are watching you as you suffer. Your husband or wife watches you as you suffer. All of your friends are watching you as you suffer. Everyone at your office who knows what the deal is are watching you as you suffer. The community of people who know you are watching you as you suffer. They don't always know what to say to you because it can be a little awkward. But here's what they want to know. Is your faith real? And does this Jesus whom you profess also make a difference in suffering? Does he make a difference there too? So the big idea for today is that life is mission and that that includes our suffering. We pick up our study this morning in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says, and they were speaking to the people. And I want to stop there for a minute because I know a lot of you guys missed last week and without the backstory, you know, that's just like, huh, what? And the backstory is important, okay? So last week as we gathered together and we looked at chapter 3, we saw that as Peter and John, together with every other observant Jew in Jerusalem, was going up into the temple to the afternoon hour of prayer. Just like they had done that morning and just like everyone in the city did every morning and every afternoon. And as all of them were funneling through the beautiful gate, just like they all did every morning and afternoon, Peter and John saw a guy that they had seen a thousand times before but had never really seen. They noticed a guy that they had no doubt noticed a thousand times before, but had never noticed. They began to move past a guy that they have moved past a thousand times before, but never until this moment were moved by. And the reason that they had seen and noticed and moved past him so many times is because that was his spot. He's the lame guy who begs next to the beautiful gate. And everyone knew him. This guy's in his 40s. This guy was born lame. He's been sitting there for how long? 10 years? 20 years? 30 years? 35? He's that guy. And hearing his cries for money, Peter stops and says, you know what, I don't have any silver or gold, but I'm going to give you something that is more valuable. Did you hear what I just said? I'm going to give you something that is more valuable. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now, what is that? It's language of resurrection. Rise and walk. And then here's what happened next. This guy, who's never walked, got up and walked. You're like, I don't believe that. I don't believe in miracles. Well, I think if you believe in God, you therefore must believe in miracle. I would ask you, is that too difficult for God? You think he's befuddled by that? He can cure the common cold, but he can't deal with that. Think of the inconsistency there. This guy gets up and he starts to walk. And not only does he start to walk, he starts to leap and he starts to cry out. And then what happens effectively is that the priest shows up for the prayer meeting and nobody's there. Because everyone is freaking out because the guy that they've been walking past for 10 or 20 or 30 or 35 years now, the lame guy at the right side of the beautiful gate as you're going up in, is jumping around praising God in the temple courts and thousands of people flock to Peter and John and this guy who's hanging all over them like, you know, never is he going to let them go and they want to know what in the world has happened. Wouldn't you? And so what does Peter do? He tells them the gospel. Okay, you guys want to know what happened? Here, here it is. Do you remember Jesus? Because six to eight weeks ago, you guys were shouting... 
I think it was this. Let me let me quote it. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. You guys are the people led by your leaders of this temple who received back into your community and in exchange for Christ, a murderer, an author of death. You chose an author of death over the author of life. You put the author of life to death. But here's what God did. He raised him from the dead and left behind an empty tomb that neither you nor anybody here in this temple, none of your leadership has an explanation for. You're like, I don't believe in resurrection. There too. Is that something that's too much for the Lord? Can God not do that? Okay, he can, he can cure the lame guy, but he can't, he can't raise the dead? Sure he can. And what do you do with the empty tomb? What do you do with it? We've talked a little bit about that. But you've got to do something with it. I'll tell you, that was a live issue at the time that this story took place. Because they had no explanation for it. I mean, here's the reality. The governing body of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, who we'll see again here in a second, put Jesus to death. They conspired against him. They put the plot together. They politically coerced Pilate to do the job for them. They got the whole deal done. And one of their own guys claimed the body and put Jesus in his family tomb. I'm thinking that guy knew where the tomb was. They went to Pilate. They said, look, we need a whole bunch of soldiers. They sent a whole cohort of soldiers over to guard the tomb. I'm thinking the Romans knew where the tomb was. Look, if Jesus was still in the tomb, the easiest thing for them to do to put Christianity to death, which is, interestingly, what they thought they had done when they killed Christ, but that's coming unraveled, is just go to the tomb, roll back the stone, pull out the dead body and say, game over. The tomb's empty. They can't do that. And neither can you convince me that the disciples who watched their Lord die, crucified on a tree under the curse of Moses, who grew up under the theme that a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah, summoned up the courage to fight off the Romans and roll back the stone and pull out his dead body and then take his dead body and bury it somewhere, you know, out in the field or something where nobody's ever going to find it and then go to their death, inviting death upon themselves and suffering proclaiming a risen Jesus. It's silly. See, resurrection sounds crazy until you think about it. That's going to be a little bit of a theme today. It sounds crazy until you think about it. So Peter says, that Jesus that you killed is alive and well and has sent his spirit, and by his spirit he has made this man well. Wow. That's where we pick up the story, because that's where we're picking up. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, right there it says, And as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, delivering this message, the priests of the temple and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, lots of ands, it's very intimidating, came upon them. It's a forceful term. And they were none too happy. It says that they were greatly annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now they had to answer not only for the empty tomb, which they were still trying to figure out, you know, we're writing papers on that one. How do we do this? What, what do we say about this? But now the guy that's been there for 10, for 20, for 30, for 35 years, every day, that everyone knew, born lame, is leaping and has been healed in the name of the one that they crucified and thought they were rid of. And so what do they do, guys? 
It says that they arrested Peter and John and they put them in custody. So they arrest Peter and John. And of course, they held a fair trial and they did, you know, call witnesses and they didn't do any of that stuff. It's injustice. They arrest these guys. They throw them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So now what do you call that when that happens? You call that suffering. And maybe you're thinking, no, I I would call that avoidable suffering because good grief, what did they think was going to happen? I mean, when Peter and John came up into the temple and they performed that miracle on that guy in that temple and then proclaimed that message, is this a surprise that this occurs? Well, it's not a surprise at all, is it? It's completely foreseeable. So I agree, it's avoidable suffering that was unavoidable to these guys. And here's why it was unavoidable to these guys. Because they were committed to living life as mission. Because they got up every day and put everything on the table and said, Okay, Lord, good morning. I don't belong to me, I belong to you. That's a good thing. How do you want to use me today? Here am I, all of me, send me. And his spirit directed them to take a great big risk. Life as mission involves risk. Life as mission is not you and I shaving off a little bit of this and setting aside a little bit of that and and being willing to risk, and I'll put it in quotes, a little bit of this, but nothing else. It's sort of like we're coming to the table, you know, which is before the Lord, and we're saying, look, I'm willing to risk this, 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 and here's why, because I really wouldn't miss it and I don't mind losing it. So I'm going to put that on the table, but the rest I withhold. No, it's an all-in deal. Wow, you're like, that's scary. No, it's the safest place to be. In a very ironic way. These guys knowingly and willfully risk their lives to proclaim a risen Jesus. And they suffer, quite foreseeably, as a result of that. But now notice what they do with their suffering. Because they don't just endure it, they embrace it. They don't just, you know, receive it as something that they've got to kind of hunker down and grit their teeth and somehow get through. We'll just power through this and it'll eventually be over. But they receive it as if from the hand of the Lord and they welcome it into their life as an opportunity to suffer differently from the rest of the world. And in suffering differently from the rest of the world, to be able then to proclaim the one who makes them so incredibly different. Luke says this, Again, verse 1, he says, As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests of the temple and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees as well swooped down upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's the problem. And so then, quite foreseeably, they arrested Peter and John and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But now notice how many people came to faith in Jesus because of their risk. Luke says, but many of those who had heard the word before the posse arrived believed in Christ and the number of men alone. So then how many more women, how many more children, how many families represented here? The men alone came to about 5,000. Man, that's awesome. That's amazing. And then Luke says that on the next day, now listen to the list and feel the intimidation. This is a big deal. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. So they're called an emergency meeting, and everybody's coming into town for it if they don't already live there. 
They gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. What is he describing here? He's describing the Sanhedrin. He's describing the governing body of the Jews. He's describing the who's who of the power players of Israel. And very importantly, he's describing the same group of guys that had six to eight weeks earlier conspired against Christ to put him to death. So as these guys are sitting in jail overnight, what do you think they're thinking is in all likelihood going to happen to them? They've already seen these guys operate. Hey, you know what? Last time they got together, it was Jesus. Are we going to fare any better? Probably not. I don't think these guys slept a lot that night. Not just because I'm sure that it was unbelievably uncomfortable in terms of their accommodations. I think they had a lot to think about. It says, and when the Sanhedrin had set Peter and John in the midst, can you imagine it? They're all gathered around them. These humble, uneducated Galileans. I mean, it's one thing for Jesus to handle these guys, but, but wow, it's a big moment. And they inquired of Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this undeniably great miracle? And then Peter, who had been up all night with John thinking about what it is they ought to do, did what, you know, pretty much all the rest of everyone else would do, which is what? Tried to negotiate a settlement. He said something like, hey, um, you know, uh, John and I have been thinking about it, and I don't know what we were doing yesterday. I just, you know, I mean, in retrospect, it, it doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, we're willing to risk this and this and this because we don't really mind losing that, but I'm having a feeling that there's a whole lot more at risk here than we were willing to venture when we kind of got into this deal. So is there some way that we can negotiate some kind of a deal here by which we walk out alive and unscathed? Can we, you know, put together a press release where we deny the whole resurrection thing? Can, can we claim that we don't actually know how this guy got healed? And in fact, we just happened to come upon him and he was jumping around and praising God. And we thought, hey, this is an opportunity to proclaim the false Messiah and pay for it with our lives. I love this guy, Peter. He's awesome. He's so bold and he does what so few of us do. All of us fail here. (laughs) So many ways. See, the reality is his goal is different from the goal of almost everyone else who lives. The goal of almost everyone alive, when you really boil it down, is self-preservation. I want to preserve my life. I want to preserve my health. I want to preserve my money. I want to preserve my security. I want to preserve my name. I want to preserve my comfort. I want to preserve my relationships. I want to preserve. I want to preserve. I want to preserve. I want to preserve my life. As though that is the supreme value in the universe. And yet this book and the entirety of the Bible is coming to us with a greater value. The supreme value in the universe is Christ. And the day begins with, good morning, Lord, I'm not my own. I, I don't belong to me, I belong to you. That's a good thing. Here's my everything. Now what? How do you want to use me today to take your mercies and message to the world? Peter, unflinchingly, filled with the Holy Spirit and probably with his heart going 100 miles an hour, said to them, rulers and people... The rulers of the people and elders, he said, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, 
By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone of the true temple of God. And of the true people of God. And then he says this. He says, and salvation. Don't miss this. Here's his closing argument. And salvation, right? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must, it's mandatory language, be saved. And as we're going to see in a minute, that doesn't play very well with these guys. Um, but, you know, the reality is it, it doesn't play very well in our offices either, does it? It doesn't play all that well with some of the members of our family. It doesn't play all that well in a lot of our friendships. It doesn't play all that well. Maybe down at our school, it doesn't play all that well in our day and age and culture. That is just not a popular message. Tom, are you trying to tell me, this is the way it goes, that the God who created all those kinds of fish and all these kinds of birds and all these kinds of insects and all these kinds of flower and fauna and trees and fields, all these different kinds of geographic formations in the earth, all of the different constellations in the sky, all of the different kinds of people in the world, this God who majors on diversity, this God has created only one way to him. Is that what you're saying? Doesn't it seem more reasonable that this God who is so big time into diversity would create a multitude of ways to him, different paths up the same mountain, if you will? We'll call those ways religion. We'll name Christianity as even one of them. But isn't it more likely that that's what he would do? It seems unreasonable and frankly, arrogantly Narrow-minded to say otherwise, doesn't it? Well, I don't think so. I really don't. You know, it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, it's an inviting argument. You hear it and you think to yourself, wow, yeah, I had never even thought about that. That was, that was interesting. He is kind of into diversity and it would kind of make sense and it would, see, it sounds reasonable until you think about it. That's one of our themes, thinking today. And you think about it in light of all the different world religions, the so-called paths up the same mountain to the same God. And you begin to discover how radically and irreconcilably different they are. So let me give you some examples. In some of the world's religions, you have one God, a God. In many others, you have a multitude of gods. In one of them, you have like 300 million gods. And in many of the world religions, you have no God at all. So who's at the top of the mountain exactly? You see, it just breaks down, guys. It doesn't make any sense. In many of the world's religions, you have a personal God, assuming that you have a God as opposed to a multitude of gods. In some of the world religions, you have a God of some sort, but it's an impersonal force. It's an it, not a he. Well, that's, that's a problem. In many of the world religions, you have life after death. So you die and then there's something, okay? In many of the world religions, you die, that's it. Game over. How far up the mountain have I gotten? 
In those religions who agree on a life after death, there's no consensus as to what that life after death looks like, where that life after death will be. There's no common vision that you can kind of tie all together and go, see, it's really just one story. No, it doesn't make any sense. And in all of the world's religions, with the one exception of Christianity, the way to advance to the God, or is it to the gods, or is it to no God, is it to the personal God or gods, or impersonal God, gods, or no God? Well, in any way, the way to advance in the religion is by being a good person. But now here's the problem. There's no consensus on what that means either. There's no common ethic. Oh, see it. Good person means this in every... No. It doesn't. Christianity is that one exception. I talked with a girl after the first service today. She came up and she was crying and she said, you know, is it okay that I cry in church? And I said, you know, we have people who just cry the whole service. And uh, I think it's the preaching. So um, <laughs> could be uh, my mother weeps tears of joy and she's alone. Um, I said, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It, it's, it's okay. It's great. This is a good place for that. And she said, you know, my life is just so messed up. I don't feel like I can come to God. I don't, I mean, how do you become a Christian? I say, see, that's the beauty of this. It's different from all the other world religions. It's not get cleaned up and come to God. It's you'll never get cleaned up enough to come to God. Oh, you want to be a good person? The standard is God Himself. Have fun. Feeling desperate yet? I said, where you're at is where you need to be, realizing I am unworthy of God. But Christ is worthy. And so I had the privilege of praying with her to receive Christ after the service. It was awesome. But that's Christianity. And that is not only what the Bible says, it's what my heart says. You know what my heart says? My heart says, left to myself, no matter how much good I do, I have reason to be afraid of the Lord. But in Christ... I have no reason to be afraid of the Lord because in Him I am fully and completely and wholly accepted. I don't have to climb a mountain. Jesus has climbed the mountain to me. And I don't have to wonder who my God is. His name is Christ. It is not unreasonable to claim that there is one way to God. When you look at all the differences amongst the world religions, how could you possibly say otherwise? And it's not unreasonable to claim either that Christ is the one way to God in light of the fact that he has a credential no one else has. He rose from the dead. You're like, I don't believe in resurrection. Really? That's too much for the Lord? Can the grave hold the author of life? What do you do with the empty tomb? And you're like, all right, fine. But what do you do with all of these people who sincerely believe in all these other religions? Well, I think you start with the premise that you and I, all of us and all of us have done this, sincerely believe things in our lives, maybe even right now, that are not true. Listen, when I was a kid, I sincerely believed, no kidding, that I was going to be a professional football player. Look at me! <laughs> Clearly, I am too big and strong and fast for that. I was sincerely wrong, wasn't I? I could sincerely believe that today is Monday. And right now, because Monday's my day off, I'd be home, you'd be here. Matt and Ryan would be running around. My phone would be buzzing off the hook. I'd be looking at it going, why are they calling me? It's my day off, just turning the dumb thing off, right? My wife and kids would be here. So that would be a little mystery to me. But these guys would be praying, oh, dear God, give me a message because I'm going to have to preach in five minutes if he doesn't show up. 
You can sincerely believe something is wrong and pattern your whole life in light of that sincerely false belief and there, well, there can be consequences to that. When Haley, who is our 13-year-old, was born, uh, she was born jaundiced. I don't, I don't know if you know what that means, but what that looks like is she looked like she had a suntan, and I'm not known for my suntan skin. Um, I've tried to get a tan, and uh, and what I've discovered is I just get a red. I don't get a tan. So, so I'm looking at this kid, and I'm thinking, this is weird. You know, so we go to the doctor two days or whatever after she's born, first checkup, and I said to the doctor, she looks like she's tan, and he laughs at me. He's like, she's not tan, Tom. She's jaundice, and I'm thinking, okay, I've heard of jaundice. I know it has something to do with the liver. Am I supposed to be freaked out by this? Is this, you know, what, what is this exactly? Like, should we be concerned? He said, well, it can be a serious thing if you leave it untreated, but it's easy to treat. The fact there's only one way to do it, he said, it's indirect sunlight. Somehow the sun, you know, works with the skin and it causes some chemical reaction and the liver begins to function and she turns as red or white as you, Tom, and no big deal and she's going to be fine. What you need to do is take her home, put her in the stroller and walk her around for half an hour during the day or better yet, just put a blanket out in the backyard, stick her under an umbrella so she doesn't get sunburned, no direct light, and, you know, let her lay out there for a while. She'll be fine. Now, I suppose I could have said to the doctor, listen... You know, Beth and I have been talking about this, and we Hendrixes don't believe in jaundice. We don't like the name. We're not even sure how to spell it. We think it's J-A-U-N-D-I-C-E, but we're not sure. We're going to look it up on the phone after we leave. But here's the deal. We sincerely believe that jaundice does not exist. Now, doctor, you might sincerely believe it does, and in which case it's true for you and maybe for some of your other patients. I don't understand those people who might think that this could actually be possibly true, but we don't buy it. And I think at that point he would have said to me, Tom, what is wrong with you? What are you talking about? Jaundice exists. And it doesn't cease to exist simply because you don't believe in it, and neither does it exist. It doesn't spring into existence simply because I do. But I've got all of these facts. I've got all of these studies. I've got all of these patients. I'm here to tell you it exists, A. B, your daughter has it. C, get out the blanket and the umbrella. But we think that way when it comes to something far more significant than jaundice. Don't we? At least everyone around us seems to. And I guess I could have said it to him at that point. All right, listen, I'll grant you jaundice. We'll put that on the table. For the sake of argument, I'm in on jaundice. But I'm not buying one way to treat it. I mean, that just seems ridiculous. It's very arrogantly narrow-minded of you, Doc. I mean, I don't get one option anywhere I go. You know, I mean, we went out to dinner at the Cheesecake Factory for Valentine's Day. They brought out the menu. It's like a dictionary. (laughs) Have you seen that thing? I got dizzy as soon as they handed it to me. I'm like, uh, I just got to pick a page and choose one thing off. Talk about options. I get options at restaurants. I get options at clothes stores. I get options at, you know, the car dealers. I get options everywhere. I got a hundred million options out there for me. I don't believe that this is the only way, and I don't like this particular way. I mean, look, I could stick her out there on the blanket, and then you got mosquitoes, you got ants. If she sees one of those giant iguanas, she's going to have night terrors about dinosaurs for the rest of her life. We're not going with that option. I'm going to find another one on the Internet, and that's what we're going to do. I think at that point, if he was still hanging with me, he would probably take me by the arm and bring me into his office and say, all right, look, I've got a thing on the wall. I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to say it slow because I think that's the way you need info. 
It's called a diploma. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to ask you, you can read, Tom, right? Okay, good. I'm going to ask you to read the diploma. Let's just start with the college. Where did I go to medical school? Oh, well, you you went to Harvard Medical School. No, it's Harvard Medical School. (laughs) And it's painfully obvious you did not also go there. That's where I went to school. I studied this stuff all my life. Here's another one. Let's read this. You know what? I'll read it to you. It has big words. I'm going to read it to you. It says that I am board certified in pediatric medicine. Do you know what that means, Tom? That means I am Green Beret of pediatricians. I am recognized by all of my peers as being some of the best of the best. I've done this for 32 years. I've seen tens of thousands of kids. Jaundice is real. One way to treat it. Put her in the stroller. Get out the blanket. And if you're afraid of the iguanas, then hang out with her, you know. Problem is, I'm afraid of the iguanas. So we went stroller. I don't think anybody in their right mind would say to the doctor, you know what, that is completely unreasonable and arrogantly narrow-minded. Anybody. He's telling me the truth and he's backing it up with some pretty impressive credentials. Look, Jesus Christ has a credential that no other religious leader in the world has. Resurrection, guys. And he comes to us with a gospel that resonates with our own hearts. We are unworthy. We are. And no matter how frantic we are in doing good things to make up for our unworthiness, we can't undo it. Jesus is the Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God. And for him to claim that, for Peter to claim that, for the New Testament to claim that, for the church to claim that, for me to claim that, and for you to claim that is not illogical. It is not unreasonable in light of all of the contradictions of the various world religions. It's just the truth. And it would be unloving for us to say anything else. But understand that when you say that, even humbly say that, which is the way to do it, There will be suffering. But here's the deal. Even your suffering is mission. So Peter and John put their life out there. Peter says to these guys, listen, remember Jesus six to eight weeks ago? Last time you guys were together, in fact. Pretty memorable. Yeah, he's alive. He's alive. He's performed this great miracle. He's left behind his empty tomb. Oh, and by the way... (laughs) There is no sal- or there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then Luke says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Why? Because they were acting differently from the rest of the world that's filled with uneducated common men. And why were they acting differently? Well, they recognized why, it says, and they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. He's the difference maker. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's kind of like the tomb, and we're still working on that one. 2,000 years later. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. This is the guy by the gate. 
and everyone knows it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, (laughs) good luck. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when we leave here, that's what we're going to keep on doing until you put us to death. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. So there's like this uprising of the people and the political pressure is such that it's like, how can we punish them for freeing the guy that everybody's been giving money to for 35 years at the beautiful gate? They're in a bit of a jam for now. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 45 years old, and so they were released this time. But as we move through this book, there will be more arrests, there will be more suffering, and we know that John, for example, dies in exile. We know that Peter, for example, dies crucified upside down for proclaiming a risen Jesus who is the only way to heaven. Think about that. These guys aren't making this stuff up. It's amazing. And here's what they did with their suffering. Here's what that church did with their suffering. They didn't just endure it. They didn't just grit their teeth and hold on and just let's just get through it. They embraced it. They received it. They welcomed it as if from the hand of the Lord as an opportunity to suffer differently than everyone else in the world did. So that everyone else in the world who also suffers, it's a common experience to man, might see the difference and realize, hey, wait wait a minute, the difference coming out of their own mouth and lips and lives is Jesus. And what happened as a result, as we talked about last week, is that these guys, by the power of the Spirit, turned their whole world upside down for Jesus Christ. It's awesome. It's an amazing, amazing story. Life is mission, and that includes our suffering. So let me end with two questions, okay? Question number one. When was the last time you took a risk for Jesus? Are you getting up in the morning, good morning, Lord, I don't belong to me, I belong to you, and that's a good thing, and you're putting it all on the table, or are you kind of going, okay, good morning, Lord, a little bit of me belongs to you, and here it is, and I don't mind losing it. Calculating my risk, I'm hedging my bets, I'm, I mean, I don't think we're called to be reckless. I don't think we're called to go out and find it, I want to suffer for Jesus today, somebody make me suffer, you know, I mean, that's ridiculous. But is it going on the table? Is it at the Lord's disposal to use however He may? Is He the supreme value or is the supreme value self-preservation? Wrestle with that. And secondly, what are you doing with your suffering? Are you just enduring it or are you embracing it? Are you awake to the reality that God has given to you in your suffering the attention of everyone in your little world and everyone in your little world is riveted to you and they're wondering, okay, is the faith real? And does Jesus really make a difference when it comes 
to suffering. See, if you live that way, if you embrace it, what happens to your suffering? It's redeemed. It becomes purposeful. It becomes meaningful. You move out of the realm of I'm an accident victim to I'm an evangelist. And this suffering, this season, this thing, this is a platform upon which I stand to proclaim the great glories of my great Savior. That's the idea. And that's the mission. So life is mission. And that includes our suffering. All right? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful that you have not left us alone in our sin and neither have you left us alone in our sorrows. God, we confess that at times it sure feels like we're alone. But even our suffering, you have given these things to us. Not just that we might endure them, but that we might embrace them, that you might use them to mold us and to shape us into the image of our Savior, that you might use our suffering to help us identify with the one who supremely suffered, that you might use them even as an opportunity to show the world that the one who supremely suffered, well, that we belong to him and that he makes a difference even in our suffering. God, give us grace and faith by which to receive that Christ. And to even to suffer, Lord, to suffer for him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.